Welcome to the Feed the Ball podcast. Thank you for listening. I'm Derek Duncan, architecture editor at Golf Digest, and this is episode 83 with designer Stephen Kay. One of the most notable architectural trends of the last 15 or 20 years, or perhaps it's a movement, has been the renaissance in our understanding of classical era golf design. Though it was happening before the mid-2000s, the more recent proliferation of research and the digitization of information has expanded and refined what we know about architects working in the 1910s and 20s and the courses they designed. Renovations of courses by major artists like Donald Ross, Alistair McKenzie, and Seth Rayner have now led to learned retrospectives of secondary architects like Willie Park Jr., Walter Travis, and Devereux Emmett. Even Dick Wilson and Robert Trent Jones's work from the 1950s and 60s is beginning to receive similar restorative treatment, and most of Pete Dye's courses are, or will be, in need of caretaking in the coming years. It's been an exciting period of rediscovery, and the number of people both inside and outside the profession with research specialties and a deep working knowledge of these earlier time periods has never been greater. But historical trailblazing and curiosity isn't exclusive to the social media age. Some designers, like Stephen Kay, were doing this kind of work when the internet was essentially the catalog of microfiche at your local library, and more personal computers were being wheeled around on AV carts in schools than on desktops in bedrooms. As you'll hear in this talk, Kay wanted to be a golf course architect since he was 15 and doggedly saw it through, including a detour through turf management. He was among the first wave of designers to take an interest in the architects of the Golden Age and advocate for historical-based renovation. He was building features like punchbowl greens and Alps and Redan holes long before it was trendy like it is today. And perhaps most to the point, he designed a course in consultation with my predecessor Ron Witten, with 18 holes each based on the design tendencies of 18 different architects, from old Tom Morris to A.W. Tillinghast to Perry Maxwell up to Dick Wilson. That course, the Architects Golf Club in northern New Jersey, opened in 2001 and was ahead of its time. It's almost remarkable given the unbridled and uncritical admiration aficionados have for old-time architecture, that it hasn't been attempted again. But it's a reminder that a lot was happening in design and historical comprehension before all you young whippersnappers came along. Kay was prevalent in the boom days of the 1990s and 2000s and designed a strong portfolio of courses that are each quite different, from the minimalist links of North Dakota, which he was building at the same time Corn Crenshaw built Sandhills, to the Daily Fee McCullough's Emerald Golf Links outside Atlantic City, where the holes take inspiration from the classics of the UK and Ireland. He has consulted for dozens of old clubs around the Northeast and remains busy today, including some recent renovations of two Charles Banks courses in New Jersey and a brand new municipal course as well. And he's going to tell you all about it, all of it, and more than that. Kay is a wonderful combination of a great talker who also happens to have a lot that he wants to say. I'm pretty sure he set a new record for time of possession for this podcast. But it was all very fun to discuss and to listen to, and I hope you enjoy it too. Here's me, kind of, and Stephen Kay. I was determined. I was determined since I was 15 years old uh, to be a golf course architect. So, actually, th- thinking about the Golf Digest competition that Ron did, uh, I think the first one was in either 85 or 86. I don't remember the armchair competition, and I don't remember if 
if you remember that and what he wrote about it before they announced the winners, because it was it was the, the competition was November, December, January, whatever it was, where you had to. And I was already working. I was already self-employed at this point. And I was in New York, had been in Michigan. I'll talk about that later. And and um, he he announced, you, you know, you couldn't be an architect and you had to send in $10 and they mailed you a blueprint, you know, and, and all that. And you had to do the design and mail it back. And Ron, have you ever talked to Ron about this? Not in this detail. I mean, yeah, I have. Okay. We've okay. talked about it a so, little bit, but not so, like this. So Ron said he tried to get it for a couple of years. But the marketing people kept get, saying no. And they they said, who's going to send in $10? And we have to take a plan and we have to roll it up or fold it. I don't know what they did, how they mailed it. And they mail it to you and then you gotta, they got to do drawings. They got to mail it. So he finally, after two years, convinced them to do it. And the marketing people says, you'll be lucky if you get 600 entries. If we get 600 entries, it'll pay for the secretaries and folding it and booming the blueprints and mailing it in and blah, blah. Does that sound like the, the, the sounds like the money people, right? Still, they're so, still around. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure they are. Uh, 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 probably even more so. There's today. more, there's more of them in there. Yeah. They're <laughs> I had, again, this is 85 or 86. And I started my business in 83. And slowly starting to build up work, very slowly but surely. And at this point, of of I go to my I had a PO box in Purchase, New York, uh, and I get it. And I go to McDonald's, and it was the issue that was going to announce the winners. So they were not announcing the winners because the the jury I I don't remember who it was Pete Dye, Arthur Hills, whomever it was then. You know, it was taking them longer to get through it. I'm actually getting choked up now. <laughs> really? I'm in McDonald's and I'm reading this and I'm starting to cry because he quotes priests, lawyers, doctors who mailed in and say they would give up their careers in a minute to be a golf course architect. And they didn't get 600 entries. They got 20,000 entries. 20,000 yeah. and I'm in McDonald's crying <laughs> here, here it is 30 years later I still get choked up but yeah. anyway <laughs> yeah well, it, so it's, that's that's what happened with me I, I was obsessed <laughs> it shows you though you know the, the magic of this profession is that it does I mean you could you could easily find 20,000 doctors lawyers accountants right now who would say they wanted to be a golf course architect they oh, drop absolutely. everything but absolutely. it takes the determination of somebody like yourself to sit through five years of an environmental design class and 28 all-nighters studio and all well, that well, and, and during the summers in the summers i worked at the concord hotel on the maintenance crew and then i realized to be the best architect i could be i should probably know more about turf but I still, when I graduated, I still sent in resumes and I sent in stuff. The only guy who interviewed me was Joe Finger. You know who that is, right? I've heard of him. Absolutely. Yeah. So, and, and the reason was I had worked Texas. at the Concord Hotel, right? Correct. Texas. And I had worked at the Concord Hotel and he had done the monster course yep. there. So he interviewed me because he had a, a pregnant woman that was leaving on maternity leave and, and he was going to replace her. And he was doing, I think he might've been doing Glen Oaks in New York at the time. I don't know, but he was in New York and he met me at a hotel in Manhattan and we talked and he says, I'm going to make a decision. I have to get a couple of jobs in order to really, and he called me a month later. He said, I didn't get the couple of jobs, so I can't afford to replace her. I'm just letting her go. So I didn't get hired. 
but I had visited a friend of mine who had gone to Michigan State and turf grass. And Dr. Payne there said how you could come to this program and you could meet all these golf course architects. So I took a job on Park Avenue after I graduated. I had a connection there because of my mother, which I probably should say something about that. That's a funny story. Actually. <laughs> Make a she, uh, anyway, she um, so I get this job on Park Avenue. I hated it. So I applied. And I went to Michigan State and that's what happened. I went to Michigan State. I got out. I was a growing superintendent of a new golf course uh, that Bill Newcomb had designed. But the owner was an absentee owner. And then I got a, a job with a small construction company. And then Bill Newcomb, I kept bugging Bill Newcomb, and then he hired me, and I worked with him. And I'm not sure if you know this, Bill Newcomb was the first person to ever be work with Pete Dye. No, that is actually news to me. Yeah. Okay. Really? All right. So if you so this would have been Bill Newcomb. This would have been Bill Newcomb with him is early sixties, sixties, early sixties, yeah. mid sixties. Uh, so I played golf with Bobby Weed once, and he had read just read something. They had just come out with the uh, golf. No, Sports Illustrated had just come out with the tree, the trees, the family trees of architects. And they had Trent Jones and Donna Ross and they had Pete Dye. And he had noticed my name on it. And he says, you're the, you, you were Bill Newcomb. You're the Bill Newcomb guy. The Newcomb guy. You're the Newcomb guy. Yeah, I never worked with Pete directly. And he goes, and I says, well, Newcomb's got, and he goes, was he the first? I go, he was the first. I said, he's got, got you, all the rest of you guys that work with Pete Dye, he's got you with three things. I go, he goes, what? And we're playing. We're playing at the, an ASCCA meeting. And, and and I'm carrying my bag at the time. He's carrying his bag. We're talking. And I go, well, I said, he was the first. He goes, okay. And I said, he was also an employee. Because he was an employee. The rest of us were 1099 yeah. you know, independent contractors. <laughs> you know? I said, yeah, he hated he having an employee and doing withholding taxes. So he stopped after Newcomb. And I go, and Newcomb was the best golfer. Oh, wait a minute. You know, I played college golf here. I did this. What's his name? It's a scratch. It was a plus two or whatever. So I said, I could, I could get to the ace up my sleeves or you could, or I could tell you this. He says, tell me the slow story. I'm going to do a middle one. So Newcomb walks on and makes the Michigan golf team competed against Jack Nicholas. Mm. He, when I worked for him, by the way, he was the coach of the Michigan golf team. Uh, That's an interesting double duty. He won, he won the Michigan amateur once or twice. He won the Indiana open as an amateur beating the club pros did really good in the North and South did really good in the Porter cup, went to the quarterfinals of the U S amateur. And then this is where Bobby, Weed gave up. He's okay. He's the best golfer. I said, Newcomb played in the masters. He goes, the masters. Okay. I give up. <laughs> he played in the masters. The, I didn't play the masters. That's really strong. I think that's strong. I played a little bit at Syracuse and I was a five handicap, but I had a very famous coach. Um, you could tell me who my coach was at Syracuse. At Syracuse, who's the golf coach in the? This would have been. Yeah, they don't even have a golf team anymore. Really? When this, when the coach became a coach of something else, they did not replace him because there's you're no not, season. You're not going to say Bayham, are you? I am talking Jim about Bayheim. Jim Bayheim. <laughs> was the golf he coach. was my golf coach. <laughs> That's amazing. So, but but you're going to appreciate this too. I so guess the I'm, golf coach is more of a moonlighting position at this well, time. Well, he, you know, he's a five six handicap. So he was a pretty good golfer. So they made him, and he was second assistant then, and a scout, and they paid shit then. Now they pay assistants pretty good money, but then they didn't. So they made him a golf coach, and this is this is I started at Syracuse before before freshman could play varsity 
So it was a freshman team. So he has tryouts for the freshman team. And I remember reading it in the, in the you know, Daily Orange and student newspaper, blah, 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 tryouts. First two days, and it was, and it said, no charge. They actually put in the words, no charge. Drumlin's golf course, no charge, 36 holes. The low eight guys make the freshman team. First day, Derek, 60 guys are there. Oh, wow. They're shooting 120. They're <laughs> <laughs> Free golf. <laughs> yeah, God. And Beheim was there, and and then he, he goes, it's just, if, you, if you shot over 85, don't show up the next day. So there was, I think, 15 or 20 of us. And I think I shot 81.78, and I was number six out of the eight. Uh-huh. There was yeah. only two good guys. Really, there's only two good guys. We had three, five matches. We got snowed out of three of them. Where we couldn't play. Got up in the morning. It's upstate. I went to bed thinking we had golf the next day against Onondaga Community College. No match. Got snow on the ground. (laughs) The junior kid, there was a junior kid who had very whitish hair and we called him Whitey and he was going to be a senior. He says, I'm going to have tryouts for the for the uh, golf team, for the varsity team. In September, you move into the dorm two days early. I move into the dorms two days early. I try out for the team. I shoot about the same thing. And now I'm going to be number seven on the varsity team. I'm all excited. Varsity, right? I then go to the gym to register for my landscape architecture classes. Site engineering. This is my sophomore year. Site engineering. Tuesday, Thursdays, 2 to 4. I go, oh, this isn't good. We're supposed to meet every day at 2.30. (laughs) (laughs) Design studio. Monday, Wednesday, Friday, 1 o'clock to 4 o'clock. And I'm going, don't you have morning class? No, you're all together. All 90 students are together. So I go to Bayheim's office. It was a little tiny office. I bet it's bigger now. <laughs> it has tiny a window office. now, at least one. Yeah, <laughs> it has a window now, yeah. Little tiny office. And I go in Manly Fieldhouse. I go, coach, I can't be on the varsity golf team. He says, why? I says, you know, my major, blah, 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 blah. He says, well, change majors to me. He says, yeah, I was just going to say. I, <laughs> I, I go, well, you're I got the a wrong, better You're taking the wrong classes, Steve. Bar- I got a better chance of being a golf architect than being on the PGA tour. <laughs> so I, I, and then I ran into him 10 or 15 years later. He barely knew me. And I reminded him that he'd said change majors and I had a better chance of being a golf course architect. He says, now I remember you. <laughs> and he says, so are you a golf course architect? I said, yes. And he slapped me five. <laughs> nice. That's a good that story. It. That's good. Last time I saw him. <laughs> well, you, you said you wanted you at that at this point in time that you really wanted to be a golf course architect that's what you wanted out of your life what in that time period this would have been the late 70s something like that but no when you but when you were 50 you said when you call the golf digest and telling them to give you a raise (laughs) when you were 15 i became i i i graduated high school in 1969 I'm okay. 71. Okay. So tell me I look okay. Even even better, even more interesting. <laughs> in this sometime when you're 15 years old in the 1960s, 60s. you want to be a golf course architect when when 99 out of 100 people who played golf didn't know what a golf course architect was. It was I, it was it was Herbert it's on my wall here. Herbert Warren wins article. Two-part article. In golf course understanding understanding golf course architecture. Two-part article. In Golf Digest, 1966, yep. I think it was the October, November, or November, December issues. I don't remember what months. And I was going to be a math teacher. I didn't know what I was going to be. My father worked on an assembly line in a factory. I was very good in math. 
if, if my 12-year-old self could beam here in a time machine, 12-year-old Steven would destroy me now <laughs> in math. Just destroy me. I took differential calculus at Syracuse as an elective because I knew I'd get an easy A. That's a true story. Easy A. <laughs> an easy A, and it was. I'm terrible now. Calculators have destroyed me. So anyway, I, I, I was going to be a math teacher, and then I read I fell in love with golf. Just I was a pretty good athlete as a kid and just fell in love with golf and then read that article. And when I read uh, the second part, I you know put the magazine down. I said a prayer to God. I said, Lord, please let me be a golf course architect. So I go to tell my mother. Okay. Now, my mother is an executive secretary for I.M. Pay. Have you heard of I.M. Pay? Absolutely, yeah. The, famous the great architect, uh, Louis, building the architect. Yep, the pyramid. He designed right, right. a famous building in my, where I went to college in Boulder, the right. hand car building up on the Right, I think, wasn't that in the, in the Woody Allen sleeper movie, I think? It was. I think yep. that building was They have that, like right? a chase scene through there. Right, right, exactly right. He did, uh, you know, the, the National Gallery, Washington, the Kennedy Library. Yep. But my mother wanted me to be an architect. A real architect. A real yep. art, build, building architect. Yeah. Realize. Somebody who could actually someday be famous, not a, <laughs> not so, doing podcasts. <laughs> not the, well, whatever. No, we're famous in our little, uh, you yes, know, little yes, tribe, yes. in our tribe here. You know, so um, I tell her, I want to be a golf course architect. And there was this pause. And I could see a little disappointment on her face for maybe 30 seconds. And then she's just thinking and she says, well, at least it has the word architect in it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, put that in, put that in small font when you print your business cards. Which I got to meet him many times, had lunch with him twice. He was a great man. You know, he just died a few years ago at 103 or 102. He was still doing sketches of what a building was going to look like till within three months of him dying. So he was 100 years old and he was still doing sketches and design stuff. You know, what's interesting about that is that in his line of work, in his type of architecture, there's almost no limit to where that art form can go. I mean, you can, buildings can be reconceptualized all the time and they can be integrated into, yes. into their environments in different ways that are, are not yet thought about. But golf course architects really don't have that luxury of reinventing the, the art form. And, and, and no, we don't. We have a much, obviously, a lot larger canvas to work with. Whether it's 100 acres, 200 acres, or what did Crenshaw and Core get in, in Sandhills? 8,000 acres or whatever yeah, when he bought yeah. the property. Miles. Whatever, miles. Um, I just, I just, I have to thank the good Lord that the Scots, Derek, did not decide that the first hole is this. Green this size, bunker here, this. Second hole is this. Third hole is this. Because then it would be like every tennis court. Mm -hmm. and every baseball field and every basketball court. You know, I joked that I wanted to be a tennis court architect, but I wanted to put bumps and mouths and do stuff around in the tennis court, but sure. the U.S. Tennis Association wouldn't let me do that. So. <laughs> not, not the audience that you think that there might be for yeah, that. No, no, no. <laughs> but, you know, golf course architects, you're, so, there are, it, you're confined by space, by the number of holes, by tradition, by what's acceptable. You know, the average golfer doesn't have a whole lot of tolerance for quirkiness they can get you can get them there over time but but they are there to to perform a an athletic endeavor and Absolutely. it has to be functional on top of all this i mean you have to make the golf course drain and work and there's all these other considerations that go into there's it. so much more to that and i think having 
worked in maintenance for six years and having been a superintendent, having, I just stopped teaching, but I taught for over 30 years in the Rutgers turf program. I taught a golf construction class and I taught a fun class called design history and principles, you know, and I had them know about some of the golden age architects like Donald Ross and Tilly Hans and some of those guys and some of the newer guys, the Tom Doak and Gil Hans and Reese Jones. Uh, so people don't realize how much there is to maintenance, how maintenance really has changed the game of golf. And people have been talking about that. And I've been reading recent articles about how much it changed. Probably the thing that one of the things that changes the most Derek was actually the tournament bed, bed knife that came out in 1978, 79. Prior to that, you really couldn't mow greens less than three sixteenths of an inch. And when I was a growing superintendent, I, I was the only public golf course in, in my area of Michigan that mowed a three sixteenths of an inch. Everybody mowed a quarter of an inch. When Bryson won at Wingfoot, September of the COVID year, right? 2020? Is that yep. when he, when he yep. won? The fall of 2020. Everybody, there was all these things going by and chats going by and, oh, the Greens when Hale Irwin won the massacre in the Marinick at plus seven. You know, the Greens were 13, 14, whatever. There's no way they were 13 or 14. <laughs> Now, I'm not sure if you know this, and this is somebody you should interview, by the way. Very sharp guy. And I'm, not, I'm assuming you've heard of him. His name is Ted Horton. Have you had a, heard of Ted Horton? No. All right. Ted Horton was the, was the superintendent at Wingfoot for the 74. He then went from there to Westchester Country Club, which is a story in and of itself. He hired me in the late 80s, early 90s to do some work at Westchester Country Club on the South Course. Then he went and he was the head head agronomist at Pebble Beach. So I called him. I got in touch with him during all these debates on the, you know, the Greens were rolling at 13 or 14 in 1974 at Wingfoot. And I'm thinking, there's no way. <laughs> you know, three sixteenths of an inch is the shortest you could cut it. If you double cut it and you did this, you did this, maybe they were nine. Right? Have you seen that slide on what the, what the stint meter was in 1978 Seven. at different courses? Yeah. Did you ever see that? Yeah. Uh, I, I mean... The average green speed at that time of the average American course was generously six and a half. Yes, and Ag exactly right. Augusta could get up to like almost eight. Yeah, they, they were, I, I could bring it up on the screen if you want. Uh, the, uh, the fastest was Oakmont and they were less than 10. Yeah. They were like nine yeah, feet. I teach this inches. to our panelists in our new training program. Yes, yes absolutely. Absolutely. So I called Ted and I go, tell me about the greens, because it is true that supposedly, I think, I'm not sure if it was the first practice round or the first round on Thursday, but supposedly Jack put it off the green. <laughs> and supposedly there was some guy a young pro at the first tee and it came that all the way you know the rumor that, you know from the first from the first green all the first tee that jack had put it off the first green he went, jack nicholas put it off the first green what am i gonna do <laughs> anyway so i called ted ted had had saved his bed knives and he said right away what what i just said to you that tournament bed knife wasn't out couldn't mow you could not mow short in 360 well, explain what that explain what a tournament bed knife is the reels go like this, right? The re the reels are turning. Like this. making like a, a rotary Here, gesture, like an old school here, lawnmower with the blades. Here, here's that, the that mower. It's not a rotary mower. A rotary mower goes this way. That that's what you mow your yarn. 
what mows fairways, greens, and tees generally are real mowers. Like a well, wheel. Definitely greens is a real mower. It turns like, it turns a like wheel. that. And there's a there's a bed knife under here. There's a thing under here that as this turns, it it this is turning, the grass is here, and this turns and the, like a scissor, it's cutting it. So the bed knife is under here. The reels are a turning. A long, flat bed knife. And right there, and that's where the and scissor And the wheels pinch the, the grass between the bed knife and the wheels, Correct. and that's how it Correct. cuts the greens. Correct. Correct. So what happened in 78, 79, whatever the tournament came out, they had, whatever the word is, I'm not, I'm not a wordsmith, you guys are, the metallology of it, you know, metal people figured out how to make it stronger so it didn't warp. Because when that is spinning, it gets hot. Mm-hmm. If, if you were to see a green mowing a green, mowing a green, and it's, he stopped, and you put your hand on you would burn your hand. You, you would get blisters. So what Ted did is he saved five years, if I remember, of bed knives. And his mechanic grinded them down so they could mow shorter. And he said, we only got, and each one did three, three greens. You would double cut. They double cut three greens, and so there were six guys mowing. And he said, we only got one mowing out of it because it started to warp. So he had to save all these bed knives. And that's why we got faster. And he said, said, Stephen, there was no way they were 13, but the guys were used to playing seven on the tour, maybe seven and a half, and we had them to 10, which is, in comparison, is lightning. So that's what happened. Yeah. So to me, that was the big thing. So when I started in the industry... Greens are being mowed at a quarter or three sixteenths. Fairways are being mowed at one inch. It, it all changed. It all changed. And and I was just as I was leaving maintenance to get into construction was sort of when that was happening. So my background it, it was was to do everything. I had shovels. I had you know I did all that stuff. What did you learn from from uh, Newcomb that he learned from Pete? That that's a good question. I'm glad you asked that yeah. question. Um, and by the way, you should interview Newcomb. Is he still, he, I, I, just, he's still I actually just spoke to him six months ago. I had not spoken to him in 25 years, but I got a letter, a Christmas letter from a sales guy that I still do Christmas letters from in Michigan. And he had just joined a club and Newcomb was a member of it outside of Ann Arbor. And he's 81 years old. He's like a six handicap now. It's a plus five handicap now, but I mean, it used to be a plus three or plus four, you know, I mean, he went to, he went, Pete, Pete thought he should try the tour and Newcomb went to the Western open. We're talking 19, whatever it was, 65, you know, way before I worked with him and persimmon clubs and that. It was the longest golf course he'd ever played. I think he says it was 7,000 yards and he shoots five under 67. Never played it before on a Monday qualifier. He says, as, as I'm driving back home to Ann Arbor Monday night, because they only had three spots, and one guy shot 65, two guys shot 66. He didn't make it. He goes, this is the best I could ever play a course I've never played before. I'm not good enough, and he never tried the tour again. Yeah. yeah, That's, an, that's a great old story. So many great golfers have had that same feeling. I'm not one of them, but but you hear that story <laughs> no. a lot. These guys are so like, what was like, the best? That's the best I've ever been. I was a five handicap in college and in between marriages when I had time to play. What's the best you've been? Six. 
Good. All right, we're yeah. the same. Six plus. Yeah, but I'm, it's a not, nine, I'm, not there I'm a nine point seven now, but I've lost. You, you start losing so much distance when you get into your upper sixties. Tell me about like, it. <laughs> so what Newcomb said, what what Newcomb said, Pete talked about, and he his first job with Pete, and that's a story you should get from him, was at Radrick Farms, mm-hmm. which is the club that people could is a private club that university of michigan owns versus the university of michigan golf course which is alistair mckenzie across from the stadium uh is open to the public uh so he talked about stuff he talked about you know the railroad ties and doing some crazy stuff but the one thing i remember him saying the most was that pete said don't get so crazy about the shape of a bunker Whereas, and I'm just going to draw something back in the sixties, you had Trent Jones, you know, and he, and he was doing all these amoeba shaped bunkers. Yep. And that Pete said, just be just strategically get the bunkers in the right location. Don't worry about the shape of them. Just get them in the right place. And and that that affected me a lot when I started my business in New York, which was a whole thing that cre- created a lot of poverty. I had to, when I was leaving Newcomb, I had a chance to to go to Florida and do a new nine hole golf course, and I was all excited. I'm going to go to Florida. I'm going to hang up my you know sign, and I'm going to be a golf architect there. And they wanted me to be a construct the construction manager also to design it, be on site every day. But I said, well, I got to have time to go out and find other jobs. And they said, okay, work five days a week, time it with your contractors. You know, if you have to take over Monday, take over Monday. But we want you to, you know, 60 hours a week, five days a week. And I said, that's fine. And what it was, it was a developer from Michigan that I met through an irrigation guy. And he owned property and he was doing this nine-hole golf course with housing. But I wasn't sure if it was going to happen, Derek. So I was coming to New York, interviewing people and talking to people in New York. Do we do they need a golf course architect in New York, which is where I grew up? So, I mean, I grew up in New York City. I'm a New York City kid that, you know, became a golf course architect. It's crazy. So I have a meeting with him and I have all these pictures of old stuff. Donna Ross, Tilling Hans, all this old stuff because I want to do an old fashioned golf course. And they meet me at this lunch where we meet at a restaurant. And they're showing me all these pictures of Nicholas had just done Lachahatchee and all this stuff like the moonscape. I think that was even the term at the time was moonscape. I go, I don't want to do that. <laughs> and they go, that's what we want. So I turned down 50000 a year or, or for two years. It's going to take two years. They thought it was going to take two years to build this thing. I turned down that money, turned it down, went to New York, with not a job, nothing. <laughs> Made $4,000 the first year, made 11000 the second year. Because I wanted to renovate Donald Ross and Tillinghass, Devereaux Emmett. I wanted to learn what the old guys did. I wanted to learn their techniques, learn their views, and learn from them. Because I always thought that restoration was important. Uh, although, I, I, I get, I'll be honest, I get bugged when people talk about, oh, this was a true restoration. And I don't want to mention architects' names, but oh, this was a true restoration. And I say this to them at ASTC meetings, and they, I can see they get a little perturbed by me. Go, really, a true, absolutely true rest- restoration, yeah. Okay, so you mow in the greens at a quarter, 
you took out the ladies tees and your mullen affair was at yeah. one inch <clears throat> removed and, drainage. Well, no well, we're not doing that well i like michael herdson's term you know you've heard his term right he calls it a sympathetic restoration sure Mm-hmm. And I, I have always, since I started my business in 1983, said, okay, if I'm doing work at Devereaux Emmett or doing work at Tillinghast, Don, Donald Ross, I did a lot, done a lot of Donald Ross, a lot of Tillinghast. I go, what would they do if you could resurrect them today, bring them here in a time machine, give them a year to study the game of golf? What does the average player do? What does the club pro do? What does the tour player do? What's the maintenance like? Give them one year to see the game of golf then I try to imagine what they would say. What the, here, here, Donald, you could change your golf course. I mean, look at how much he changed Pinehurst too. Mm-hmm. All those years he was there. It had sand greens at first, right? Yeah, I mean, that course evolved continually until the late continually. 30s. And the same with National, with McDonald. Yeah, no, I, I, that's true. It's hard to imagine that anybody would come back a century later and insist on building a home uh, with the same technologies that they had in 1920 when you could right. when you could have the right. technology of 2020 and golf architects i'm sure are the same do you think it's enough to so you think it's enough when you're executing a, re- a restoration to get the th- the thematic elements correct you're not as worried about where the bunkers are you're obviously you're going to no, you're going to no, have the well, infrastructure no, that, that is updated uh, restoration uh, yeah on the restoration i s- Let's say I get hired by a club and they haven't touched it. And it was built 1920-something by whomever, uh, a famous architect. Um, the only things that I'm thinking about potentially having to have to reposition them, although there's two ways to reposition them, and that's the fairway bunkers. The greenside bunkers, majority of the time, they're fine. 95% of the time, they're fine. Once in a while, there might be a problem because of traffic, because they were carrying bags and walking up from the front. Now there was cart, there's a cart path and that whole thing, the evolution of a cart paths and how that happened. And now everybody's walking in from this side of the green. You know, everybody's walking in from this side of the green and, and now they have a little path of a footpath because there's not enough room to walk to the green because you got two bunkers there. So then we would widen it. Maybe we'd rebuild the bunker smaller to have a little bit of a wider path for them to get from the cart path to the green. But the fairway bunkers are a lot because one of the great opportunities I had, uh, Derek, the first new green I ever did was in the fall of 1984 at Knollwood Golf Club, which at the time they thought was a, and it looked like it to me, was a Tillinghouse because Frank Hannigan had written an article about it, about Tillinghouse. And Is that the famous before the 74 open when Frank Hannigan wrote that famous piece on Tillinghast. I'm not sure if, he wrote, if it was that or did he do a, another one later, but it was at the time, I'm not sure if he wrote it, did he write it as a writer or did he write it when he was the executive director of the USGA? I don't, I, I'm sorry, I don't remember. But on my committee, when I was doing this new green complex, what it was, they actually had a, here's the green and that's your shot to the green, right? Okay, there's the green. There was the T for the next hole, and they hit over the green. They hit over the green. Sure. So they would try to remember to leave the pin out. So they didn't hit the pin. <laughs> and then as they hit their shots, they walk and they put the pin back in. But then in an outing, somebody got hit. Not seriously, thank God. 
But somebody got hit in an outing, and we moved the green up and moved the tee over, and we made some room for it. On my committee was was Willie Tanessa. Have you heard of the Tanessa family? Nope. The Tanessa family, you should Google that, by the way. Write that down. The Tanessa family was, I think, five boys. Four became golf pros, and the youngest, Willie, they convinced him to stay amateur. One of the brothers won a PGA championship, and but two of them were on Ryder Cup teams. Willie stayed amateur. Willie won two U.S. amateurs, a British amateur, was on the Walker Cup team a couple of times, and was the captain of the Walker Cup team. When I was doing work at this club, he was 86 or 87 years old, shooting his age pretty much every day. And when we did this new green complex, we took a fairway bunker on this hole that was 165 yards, 160 yards off the tee from the back and moved it then in 1984 to about 225, 230. Okay. Today, you you know, 400 yards for Bryson. <laughs> Whatever. I'm 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 tending to do bunkers about 275 now. If if I'm because I don't I'm not doing courses that have the tour guys. Um, and I remember, I said to Willie, you know, tell me about this bunker. It was 160. He says, well, with the wooden shafts and the ball we had before World War II. He says steel clubs came out before World War II, but it wasn't until after World War II that basically everybody had steel shafts. Prior, it was a slow change. He said, with the wooden shafts and the ball, you flew the ball about 150 to 170. He said, there'd be occasional guys like Craig Wood, who was a long hitter, who could maybe get it out to 180. He says, so that's as far as we hit it. One of the days I was there, and he was there, while we're, we're, this is being built. Now, I didn't have a lot of work, so I was there almost every day. I had to go to the bathroom and I couldn't go to the tree, right? I had to go to the clubhouse, okay? Right. So and I'm they, at the they clubhouse. Let you I, do, in? I do, what? They let you in? <laughs> they, they let me in. They let me in the side door. And I, I get in and, I, and as I'm leaving, after I did my thing, and uh, I see a scorecard framed. And, here's the, and it was the, not the course record, but the tournament course record was a 64 by Willie Tanessa, this guy. And I, I look at I look at the yardage, and I had the yard the current yardage in my scorecard in my back pocket, and it was within ten yards the same. They hadn't made the course any longer since whatever year that was, you know, nineteen thirty seven or something, you know, twenty yards, whatever. So I go, I get out there, I go, Willie, how the hell could you shoot sixty four at that yardage when you're telling me you're only flying at one sixty one seventy? And he says. He says, Stephen, did you, what was the date? And I had not noticed the date. I didn't look at the date. He knew the date by heart, <laughs> whatever, July something. He goes, Stephen, there was no fairway irrigation then. Golf courses didn't put fairway irrigation in until the late 40s, early 50s. So he says, the fairways burn out. And you would try to hit a low draw and you would get anywhere from 50 to 100 yards of roll. And then he said this to me, and it was interesting because at the time, I knew a guy in New York who was like a plus two. And his goal, this guy was a plus two, was to break 70 when he went to play. That's what he wanted to do. I want to break 80. He tried to break 70. And Willie said, he said, Stephen, you got to realize the difference. 
In the summer, he says, I was trying to break 70. This is a world-class Walker Cup player. He was, now, I'm not talking about him telling me the story when he's 77 years old, but he says, I'm trying to break 70. He says, in April, I'm just trying to break 80. It was, it was a 10-stroke difference. So I asked this really good player then in 1984, I says, what's the difference in spring? Yeah, maybe one or two strokes the most. The game has changed so much. Equipment so and much. turf conditioning, course conditions. <laughs> Absolutely. Where, and where is it going to go? Could we mow any shorter? The greens. I don't know. And then, and, me. <laughs> I hope there not. There are so many. I hope not. I do too. There's, there's so many greens and so many golf courses are almost unplayable. Well, so on that topic of restoration, that's something that also factors in. There's no way you can go back and recreate original green contours if you knew what they were. That, like they were building them in 1920 or 25 or 30. Well, it depends on the architect. It depends on the time, uh, the land, the property. And by the way, the best contoured greens I've ever seen, and I I was with Mark Fine, who I've only met a couple times. And, and I was, they wanted me to, him and Forrest Richardson wanted me to take them around Forsgate where I'm doing work, which is the last golf course Charles Banks designed. And I it was, I was teaching. I said, I don't have time, but I'll meet you a little bit early. I'll talk, we'll tour it really quick. I'll talk about it a little bit and then I got to go. And Forrest Richardson said to me, Stephen, what's the best contoured greens you've ever seen? And I said, I, I know exactly what it is. And he looked at, at uh, Marfine. And he's the same at the same time. And he said what I said. I almost dropped. Somerset I could Hills. not believe. We both said the same thing. Oyster Harbor, Donald oh, Ross, Oyster, yeah. Oyster Harbor on Cape Cod. Mm-hmm. I I redid all their bunkers in started I think in eighty nine or ninety and did a three year project. Oh, six oh six oh six oh. Unbelievably great. But Donald Ross did put more slope on his greens generally than Tillinghast did. Tillinghast I have not found have had to except at Binghamton Country Club where the property has a 200, 200 foot elevation change. You know, with the equipment they use, it's amazing they could even get golf courses in in those days. And that's the that's really the only, and I've done a lot of Tillinghast work. See, about the only Tillinghast golf course I've done work at where the greens are very, very sloped. Uh, most of the time, his greens are much more gentle than, say, Donald Ross. Uh, with winged foot would be an exception. I think Donald Ross is, I could still tell if I think if you went to two. I would um, say, I meant an exception in the, in the Tillinghast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a little bit more slope to those, say, for compared to Bethpage Black, which, you know, there were, there were people who thought taking the open to Bethpage Black, which I had played 50 times. I had played it a lot, much more than Reese had ever played it. Uh, I, de- I debated recently when he got the job on how he was how he was going to do the bunkers, but that's another story. Um, you can say it. Can talk well, about it. <laughs> well, he, he was going to do grass down, and I said, oh, yeah, if you investigate it, you're going to see that they flash the sand oh, okay. all over the place. Yeah, yeah, of course. So what had happened was I spoke at a Massachusetts conference, and he did, and he was the last speaker. I was the second speaker of four speakers. Jeffrey Cornish, me, Brad Klein, and then Reese Jones, and he barely got there on time. I came in the night before. It was the morning to lunchtime talk to like 400 people. And, and and the talk was about how do the old architects do it? Did they flash sand, bring grass down? What did they do? The answer is they did everything. But there had been articles that implied that, that it was only edging by maintenance crews that flashed the sand. That all the sand was, or all the old architects always did grass down and it was only edging that changed it. 
So I was getting interviewed. So you're going to bring all the grass down? I said, no, I'm going to investigate and see what happened. But Reese says at this thing, I'm going to, I'm doing work at the country club and I'm going to bring all the grass down. You know, I'm bringing the grass down like all the old architects did. And he says this to the 400 people. He did not hear my talk. And there was like a little <laughs> giggle. And he paused. I was sitting in the first row. He's up on the podium. And I could see he like noticed the people laughed a little bit at what he said. Yet to him, it wasn't funny. He just, he and I then have lunch together and we talk about Beth Page. I played it 50 times. At that point, he had only played it once. I said, you should subcontract the job to me. You know, he says, well, you wouldn't want to do it for my pay. I said, well, I'll pay you to sub it to me. You know, to do a U.S. Open course. Anyway, um, <laughs> <laughs> I actually had been doing consulting there for free at Beth Page and they would sneak me in just before tea times. And I actually have in the other room, I have a, a thing framed. Uh, from Beth Page being said, thank you for being the architect of the black, which which I wasn't. But that's what the GM at the time said. So Reese, I, I challenged Reese on what it was. And then he says, by the way, what was your talk about? And I says, the old bunkers, flash sand, grass down, how they do it. That was like the title. And he says, I'm so sorry. I miss he says, did you hear them giggle? He says this to me. <laughs> I go, yeah. He says, what did you say? And I said, well, they actually did both. And it was, this is 19, 94. So it was slides. There was no PowerPoint. Reese takes, I'm having lunch with him. He takes my slide tray and he literally went like that. He opened it up and, and looked at every single slide, you know, put it up to the light, mm -hmm. every slide. So, and then he flashed the sand. So I'll take a little bit of credit for that. <laughs> <laughs> I think he did a great job at Beth Page. Now people said, Matt Ward, you know who Matt Ward is? Mm -hmm. Yep. Crazy guy. Crazy guy. I've never met him, but yeah, he's known in this He can world. actually talk more than I can. So. <laughs> he, he he thought it was horrible they were taking the U.S. Open at Beth Page Black. He said, the greens are way too flat, way too flat, way too flat. And I had said to him, the greens right now, when they took them, are eight and a half to nine. I said, they're going to get these things to 12. So that 20-foot putt that maybe now breaks six inches is going to break two feet. And I don't care how good these guys are, how from 20 feet or 25 feet, how many of them are going to sink putts that break two feet? Right? So, what did Tiger win that? I don't remember what his score was. Yeah, like three under? Yeah, it, you know, yeah, it, wasn't, I mean, it wasn't It wasn't crazy. It wasn't they deep. didn't beat it up. You know, you, you said that uh, when you first started working, you'd come to these clubs and you'd say you wanted to like – Reestablish the their original architecture. You know what we call restoration. If it was a famous like architect, yeah, if yeah. it was an older yeah. club, and they wanted you to build chocolate drop mounds and Loxahatchee Jack kind of stuff, but that was the time. That was very early on in this whole process. I mean, that well, it, that's it. The not whole too process. many people had it, architectural knowledge, or, or I bet you nobody that you probably encountered could have told you who Walter Travis no, was no, or no. Deborah Emmett. The, the only person that seemed to be that interested in it, and I actually helped him. With his career, I don't know. if he thinks about it, he'll remember that. But Ron Force came in to start doing work about five years after I did, and he he was going to be in Cape Cod one day, want to see what I was doing at Oyster Harbor and stuff. I get a phone call first week of October, about a year after I meet Ron Force. This is probably ninety ninety one. And I was busy. I had six people in an office. Now it's just me. And I have a couple of 1099 people, but I had, I was up to six employees. I've, I've done work at 300 golf clubs. 
lot of, a lot of golf clubs. And I was very, very busy, thank the good Lord. And I get a call first week of October. It was a Thursday, if I remember, from the green chairman of Salem Golf Club, great Donald Ross golf course up north of Boston. And he explains that the president of the club hired an architect. I'm not going to mention his name, who we just fired. He hired him six months ago, didn't tell anybody, signed a contract, hired a contractor to redo all the bunkers. We found out that the Donald Ross Society started because of this architect and what he did at another a Donald Ross golf course that they thought he, the architect ruined. So that hence the Donald Ross Society started. Michael Fay, if you know who that is. There was another guy by the name of Brian De Palma or something who ended up going from Connecticut to Arizona, worked with the Golf Association, sadly got sick like 10 years later and died in his late 40s. It's sad. But so the guy says, so the contractor, we didn't fire the contractor. We heard good things about him. He's starting Monday. We need to hear Monday. We're hiring you right now on the phone Monday. I got other meetings. I got a meeting Monday on a municipal job where the mayor is going to be there. You can't change meetings with political people unless your grandmother died. You know, I mean, you're not changing that. And I, I, and I says, I could be there in about 10 days later. And he refused to delay anything. No, 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 no. Who else can I hire? And I said, well, there's this young guy, Ron Force. <laughs> he hired, they hired Ron Force, and Ron Force did this big renovation of the old bunkers of Salem Golf Club. It really kicked his career in. He did a very good job. Yeah, did a very good job. It wasn't easy back then, though, to, to do that kind of work based on historical information. There just wasn't as much uh, historical information you discovered. You couldn't research it. You, had a, you, you didn't have all the historical stuff. What I did, which you know, was hard in the 80s and even in the early 90s, really until the internet, um, some counties had good old aerial photographs. Westchester County, New York had old aerial photographs. And it was basically looking around the club. I mean, that's what happened at Beth Page. They found a rolled up aerial photograph behind a file cabinet when they were moving file cabinets. Yeah. <laughs> that showed all these bunkers, you know, and, and that's not the only course that I, I had clients. Oh, yeah, we found something in the attic. We found it in the basement or, you know, in the maintenance building. The mechanic had it. <laughs> Crazy stuff. Today, you got historic aerial. You got the Google. I mean, you got great stuff. But no, I, I, I did a golf course called Manhattan Woods that we were in by the Tappan Zee Bridge, which was just about done. I mean, it was. It was basically done when they they were interviewing marketing companies and they were going to be a private club at $40,000. The marketing companies were telling the owner, this golf course could get 150000 like Tom Fazio's Hudson National, which opened the year before. But it it has to be national and it's not going to, it can't justify that money with Stephen K's name. He's regional, he's not national. So they brought it. I was going to bring in Hale Irwin because I was doing a project with Hale Irwin that never happened, but I was with him. He, he was in my car. I picked him up at the airport. And all. Uh, so they talked to him, but they ended up hiring Gary Player. And Gary Player was very nice. But now let's say, Derek, you designed this costume for a Broadway play. Okay. And then a week before the Broadway play opens, new investors say they want a more famous costume designer. So they bring in another guy, and that guy goes like this. Now he designed the costume. 
For those of you who can't see, he uh, unzipped his quarter zip about a, a quarter inch. <laughs> oh, I didn't know we were being recorded now. I didn't know that. And I've cursed a few well, times. That's no, that's no surprise to people who <laughs> listen to this show <laughs> that, that, that uh, somebody of somebody the, the name architect didn't uh, do all the work. That's... Um, by the way, one of your podcasts I really enjoyed was when you interviewed Steve Smyers. Uh, I've known Steve for quite a while now. Where I live here, Blue, uh, Blue Heron Pines. Right. I noticed, um, I noticed that when we logged on. Right. This is in South Jersey area outside of Atlantic City. It was built by Roger Hansen. He first wanted Corn Crenshaw to do it. They were too busy, whatever. They weren't interested uh, for a variety of reasons. They recommended me some other people that he hired me on the phone, actually. It was nice. He says, as long as you don't blow when you meet me, you got the job. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then he did another 18, and I had done the routing for it at first. And then he called me, says, Stephen, I, I, I love you and I, I want to do the work. And I, this is the hardest business decision I've ever made. But yes, Tillinghast did all those at Beth Page and Donald Ross did all those at Pinehurst. But today you got a Greg Norman, you got a Nicholas, you got a Fazio, you got a Pete Dye. I think I need another architect and he hired Smarts. So he did it. Uh, I was still living in New York at the time. I, when I first moved here, it was, it was open. Unfortunately, it's closed. Uh, but I loved having 36 holes and it was very different than mine. Uh, but obviously, Steve Smyers is an elite player. I mean, Steve Smyers could have been on the tour. Mm -hmm. What he said to you was very interesting, and I talked to, about with him about it at Rhode Island. Um, very similar to after the U.S. Open with Bryson winning at Wingfoot, uh, your predecessor, Ron Whitten, and I were talking about golf architecture. And... He said it, he put it in words, what I was thinking. And I think this is what Steve Smyers in a way says. These guys are so good. They're so good. They hit it so far. They're so good out of the rough. They hit it so high to get to a green. They're so good out of the bunkers. The only thing that affects them is a big set of woods, out of bounds, and water. That's it. Strategy, risk and reward architecture has nothing to do with those guys anymore, with the elite players. I, I, I do think it absolutely has everything to do with the guy who's maybe a, a scratch to, to a nine handicapper. I think about it and I know I had an uncle who did not start playing golf, Eric, uh, Derek, until he was 97 years old. He played golf till he was 94, hmm. walking, pulling his cart. At 94 years old. That's why he lived to 96, sharp as a whip, only sick the last week of his life. Where do you sign a contract for that, right? That's my goal. That's, that's our, all our goals. My mother's 95. My mother's going to be 96. She's sharp as a whip, <laughs> but doesn't play golf. She's very fragile, little tiny woman. And um, he, he never really kept score. But if he was having a little match against somebody, he says, if I play strategically, he says, if I know trying to reach that green with a with my three wood is crazy, that I'm not going to hit, I'm going to be in the bunkers. I'll just hit my five iron, which I hit good, lay be short of the green 50 yards, and I'm good with my wedge, hit it on. He says, when I play smart, I break 100. When I don't play smart, I don't break 100. Mm -hmm. So I think strategy, the risk and reward, you know, of, of design has everything to do with golfers. Uh, so I disagree with Steve 
in that regard, except for the elite players. I totally agree with Steve Smyers that the elite players, what did he basically say? They got hit fairways. Isn't that what he basically said? They yeah, got hit yeah. fairways. He said even, it even didn't a, really a matter light, whether the right side or left side. A light, anything that, that um, interferes with their exactitude or their expectations, a little bit of rough can, can throw a, an approach shot off a few mm-hmm. yards, which puts them out of their expectation of mm-hmm, that hole. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they expect to make pars and birdies. Right. Um, right. so you, you have to find other ways to, to thwart them. And it's, you know, it's, it's getting them to not have full control over their, basically their approach shots mm-hmm, is mm-hmm. what it comes down to. Yeah. That was interesting. Steve is one of those great architects in my mind because he, because he is a good player. I think he, he kind of has his own lane that he's in. I would he say I'm courses. that good of a player. <laughs> I would not say I'm that good. Of well, a I was saying, no, I was saying Steve Smyers. Like, oh, Smyers. Oh, yes. What, yeah, like yes, his golf yes, courses absolutely. have. No, no. When I first met him, he was a plus three point five. Yeah, and his golf courses reflect that, and and he's got yes. his own lane, kind of, yes. and his own clientele who appreciate that, and it distinguishes him. I'm assuming you. Yeah, go ahead. go ahead. No, I, I, I was wondering if you. I know they're not going to be able to see it. You, you, when you talk with with Jim, Jim Urbina. Uh, who I've met once or twice. I know I've met him at least once. Um, and I actually work with a shaper that used to work with with uh, a postal weight a lot. He started in his business postal weight. Uh, you know, and shapers are, I think shapers, by the way. And I've, I've only con- had one client that I convinced to do it. I've always wanted shapers to be listed on a scorecard with the designer. Interesting. Golf yeah. course architect Stephen K. with Kevin Wager. Mm-hmm. Who is is this? I compare shapers. I've worked with a hundred shapers, and I'm for most architects. And compare, try to say how good they are, Derek, to playing baseball. You you went to a big high school. You made the baseball team. Okay, pretty good. But then you made a college team. Okay, you're better. Now you made a ball. Well, you're pretty good. Double A triple a major leagues so there are not that many major league shapers and then there are of those there's what i call major league first ballot hall of fame mm. those are the sandy koufax and Derek jeters and whoever hank aarons uh and this guy kevin is I, I know i have five five four or five shapers that i think are first ballot hall of fame and i know several others that are Major league, but unfortunately, I get a lot of jobs where I only work with double A shapers. <laughs> They're okay, but it's like uh, okay. One of the but, courses that I was looking at uh, to get ready for to talk to you, I've never played it. I really want to uh, sometime. Is the Architects Golf Club one of the most? Yes, unique- I was going to show you a couple of pictures if you wanted to look at them, and I was at that. But Kevin, by the way, I, I love your interview with Alan Mick McCurick. McCurick. He. Kevin start Kevin started in Colorado with postal weight, and then right after that, in the in the early mid eighties, he went with postal weight to TPC mm-hmm. and worked with Bobby Weed and Alan. Alan was just on the crew, right? He said, and they worked. They would do they were doing like a lot of renovations at TPC Sawgrass, which I love. It's that's in my top ten great golf course. You want to? Could you give me the screen? If I just click. I go share screen. Was that what I go to? Oh, I got it. I got it. I got it. I got it. I got it now. It's just. All right. Okay. Uh, 
Okay, the so this, the title of this this uh, photograph I'm looking at now is uh, a North Dakota land before. So this is going to be the the links of North Dakota. I'm assuming it's correct, beautiful, correct, rolling. Correct. Uh, this was this was one of my terrain. this Treeless. was one of my students, and um, that I had, and he asked me if I was interested. This was ninety two, ninety three. Was I interested? Ninety two. Was I interested in doing something in the Midwest? Well, you know, I had just remarried, just had a baby. My daughter was an infant at the time. And I said, no, you know, there's a lot of great architects out there, you know, and I'm thinking of Phillips in Denver and I'm thinking of Bob Lohman and people in Chicago. And and I go, where? And he goes, in North Dakota. Well, Gen- Generously the Midwest. I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, what a, yeah I, every, you know. New Yorkers would call Michigan the Midwest, and 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 Michigan people yeah, to would a New call Yorker, Den- yeah, the Midwest. You know, anything, you know? <laughs> anything west of Every, everything's Midwest. relative, you know. So, a Long Island people call Westchester upstate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway, um, the first the shaper who shaped the golf course I grew in in Michigan was a gentleman by the name of Marvin Schlau, and Marvin Schlau was first ballot. Major League First Ballot Hall of Fame, uh, Shaper, great, 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 great Shaper, who was actually in boot camp in 1959, by the way, with a very famous person. Who was it? Elvis. You got it. Very good. I'm doing, I'm doing okay on the quizzes today. Not, not <laughs> You're perfect, doing very but... <laughs> good. He was at boot camp with Elvis. How cool is that? Yeah. Anyway, um, he was from North Dakota, living in Ohio, but he's from North Dakota. I says, well, you know what? If... If you could, you don't have. If you could hire any shaper you want, rather than bid this thing out, we can hire anybody you want, Stephen. I said, well, then I, he knows me enough. We've done so much work together. I just got to be there maybe two or three times, and we get you half decent golf course. That's what I said. Said so. What's the land like? Because we don't have any land. <laughs> this is what the guy said. So it was western, northwestern North Dakota. He was in. A, he was a superintendent of a nine-hole golf course, and he had a water guy who put in the pivots that go in the farms, you know, in big circles, mm-hmm. pit pivot irrigation, whatever it's called. Uh, he got him convinced to invest in this thing and build a golf course, but they had to find land. Make a long story short, they had three properties, two near town, and this one out of about 30, 35 minutes outside of Williston, North Dakota, which is near the Montana border. Uh, the other two were boring and blah with horrible, horrible clay soil. This property was what you're looking at. Now, let me just. This little section of land looks like a, a very miniaturized version of Sand Hills. I mean, but that's the that's the movement that is uh, emulates. Right now, I'm just curious. Do you, do you see that? Do you get blown. a new picture? Do you have a new picture up there? No. Now or not? No. Nope. No. No. Nope. All right. So this is also the land. Now, this is actually after we did some routings and we went and just mowed the grass down. I thought I was in Scotland or Ireland when I saw this property. It's right on that body of water, which I'm so sorry. I'm never good at pronouncing, especially Indian names, Lake Sasa something. It's the Missouri River and it was dammed in Bismarck, you know, back in whenever. I guess you're in a depression, maybe. Uh, and you see that water on every golf hole. The other sites were horrible, flat, nothing to them, and horrible soil. This was something with all these hollows and shadows and all that. 
was like I was in Ireland and Derek, this was six feet of sandy loam soil without a rock in it. And Ideal. when I sent it off to be tested, Ideal. it met USG, it met USGA specs, the soil. So I'm there, we do layouts, we're trying to get developers, uh, we're trying to get money. Uh, we're, we, we, we only had $300,000 to build this golf course. Okay, that is all we had. I've got to, hold on. I just you should have, have you. this. I oh, have... I didn't hit the word share. Duh. Okay, all right. Now you see this? So the water's a little bluer in this picture. You hear, see this sort of this roadway where they're driving on the grass? So no trees, no nothing. We only got three thousand, uh, three hundred thousand dollars. The three, I, I left my fee on the table. The shaper left his fee on the table. The um, irrigation guy left his fee, and and that, by the way, was just putting a, a flag where the second green was going to be. All right. Let's see here. Oh, here's another one. So you could see all this movement that was there so you know they started using the word interesting minimalism later but i built this golf course it opened in 94. it's almost the same time schedule as sand hills well I'm they started show you building something. that in i'm gonna i'm, gonna, I'm gonna show you something here i'm gonna show you something so you, you see this par three look at those views that unbelievable. Mm -hmm. That's North Dakota for you. You can That's see North a long way. You see the bad. You see the badlands. The 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 buttes there, right? Yep. Right. You're seeing this. So this is the point that it had, it had opened already. Now let me show you this. You got this article. You see this article there here is. now. Is that what Prairie Earth? Is that what you're saying? Mm -hmm. Yep. I remember. So that's remember an article this. by Ron Witten yep. that was in Golf Digest. Uh, and the title was Prairie Earth, and the subtitle was Two New Masterpieces Have Taken Root in the Middle of Nowhere. And he was right. That's the middle of nowhere. So, uh, yeah, so there were two pictures of Sand Hills. This one, and did it just switch to a different picture? It did. So this one, and then it had a picture of mine, my course. Uh, it came in second in the golf digest competition that year obviously the big difference is anybody can go play the links of north dakota sand Hills, anybody can not so anybody much. could go play the links of north dakota you know there, there's a great thing there it's called the triple challenge for any of you listening to this go to north dakota and go the triple golf challenge and there's three courses this one jim ang's hawk tree i think is the name of it hawk and tree, Birdson's, yep. um bully pulpit that you could play in a week, very inexpensive. There's a th there's uh, a fourth one that just opened and called it's, and uh, it's Fox great Hills. Golf. Yeah, what? A, yeah. A fourth one, Fox Fox Hill or Fox Hills just opened. Okay, so it's fourth. So that, maybe it's going to be the quadruple challenge yes. now. But I had a I had a client very wealthy who went to Whistling Straits several times. He went to uh, Bandon several times, and he said to me, "I, I really want to go somewhere and play some, at least three courses." And I mentioned this. He and his son, two sons, did it. He said, Stephen, it was just as much fun. <laughs> it was only 25% the cost <laughs> of it. So if you, you can, can get there. If you can get there, yeah. It, there's some yeah, if, quality. Yeah, yeah. quality I mean, you got to, you go to, your best way, I mean, you go to Denver, you can get to mine it, or you go to Minneapolis and you get to mine it. Or you go to Bismarck and you do the circle turn that way. But anyway, this golf course, I moved 
7,000 yards of earth. Unbelievable. That's amazing. So this is, I mean, this is just a testament to great land. You find the rowdy. Oh, the rowdy is, is the design at a site like this. Yeah, yes, yes. Now here is, now you see this green? This is the par five. You're coming in from the right. You see this two level? You see that slope there, that upper plateau? Mm-hmm. That was existing grades. I didn't change that green. That was there. The only thing I did was I made that a little steeper off the side of the green. But the putting surface did not get changed. Isn't that amazing? I know this isn't I, scintillating uh, audio listening. <laughs> no, it isn't. Steve and I are looking at it photographs, isn't. but it isn't. <laughs> uh, Google links of North Dakota and, and, yeah, and get Google some ground level views, and you'll see some beautiful, beautiful sandy dunesy uh, movements. It's nice. I'm, so I'm assuming you're uh, as busy as as all your peers. Uh, that's all I hear uh, is that. Yeah. Yes. Not I've been, I'm as busy. I'm as busy day. as I've ever. I've been as busy as I've ever been since COVID started. Uh, even before before COVID, I, I got busy a couple of years before COVID, uh, and actually signed some good contracts right before COVID hit. By the way, did you did you see this bird's eye photograph of the golf course? Do you yes, see I, this? Did I? I, I did I? Yep. Yeah. It's beautiful. Yeah, it was 250 acres. See, when you have 250 acres, the routing and contours like this. And if you had a hundred architects do 250 acres with the topo of that, you probably would have a hundred different routing plans. Yeah, no doubt. Right. I mean, even if we all started the same clubhouse. Mm-hmm. But I'll tell you, when you only get, and a lot of my projects, Derek, and a lot of the average golf architect, and I don't like to use the word average, but I will, you get 150, 180 acres. If you have 150 acres, and 180 acres, you got some wetlands, you got property lines, the clubhouse has got to be here. It, and it minimizes you to, your movements. You don't and have And you give it options. to 100 different architects. You, I bet almost every architect has a very similar routing plan. There's only one way to get in and out of corners. There's, yeah, you got to get in and you got to get back out. And I, I think too many of the, too many people who say things, oh, the routing, the routing, the routing, and I, I, I think the routing is very important. Uh, don't, I'm not saying it isn't, but I think too many people give too much to it. You could have a great routing and then you could build a horrible golf course. You could have greens that have horrible contours. You could have uh, greens that have no pin placements, and now they, they have a green that's half dead because you built a 7,000-square-foot green with only one pin placement, and the superintendent's got to keep the pin in this one little section, and now it's dead grass all the time. Uh, you could have a golf course that doesn't drain well. Uh, you could have a golf course that's ridiculously too long. The white tees are 6,600 yards. You know, there's a lot to golf. It's, you know, and you could have maybe nice-looking bunkers, but – I sort of like what Jeff Brower said in Gotham a while ago. He said that uh, there's, a, there's a lot of guys out there now starting in the business who were shapers for other architects. And there's a lot more to designing a bunker than being, to being a golf course architect. Mm-hmm. There's a lot more to it. Yeah. But routing is part of that too, though, because a oh, lot routing, of these p- routing, same people. Routing is very important. And you have to do it safely. I do a lot of expert witness, Derek. And, and I'm not going to say, but I've, I've gone to golf courses where I've tried to defend a golf course or tried to defend a peer's design where they broke the rules. 
they broke the rules of the, you know, when Donald Ross and Tillinghast worked, there wasn't these standards of care or standards of the industry of how far apart one fairway is from another fairway or fairway, the center of fairways from a property line. That didn't happen at Wingfoot or, or, or other golf courses, but it is today. It is today. And, and you got to be very, very careful. Um, People get hit. I've done too many expert witnesses where people, a woman got shattered, destroyed the look of her face, a pretty woman. She was in her 20s. She got hit on a line drive right right below her eye on her cheekbone. A terrible design. Unsafe design. And they did it to get, so they could get the 7,000 yards. People have to think about that. And it's hurt me, by the way. I've lost jobs because I say, you can't get this yardage. You know, and I'm not going to design something that's not safe. Does the, does the current level of of activity that you're experiencing does it feel any differently than it did in the night in the like the 90s, late 90s, early 2000s when we had another boom? We're not quite at a boom yet. There's construction; it's mostly still renovation, but the activity level is incredibly high. How does it how does it compare? Well, it 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 compares in. Uh, let me see. No, the boom, the boom, it's, it's not the boom. You know, you had the boom of what, from from 1915 to 1930. Uh, you had the boom from 1990 to 2005. Some people, by the way, think they should take the 90s should be one segment of architecture. And 2000 to 2010 or to now is another segment. I don't think so. I think in periods, if you write a history book like of art, in the history of time periods, the time period of design is the 19, 1990 to, to, to 2005, 2007 when it stopped. Now it started again, what, yeah, three, four, that, five years ago. Um, and by the way, I think that design period is a lot better than some people give it mention to. Uh, I think today, I think design is great today. I think cutting down all these a lot of these trees is good. I think some people are going a little too far, but 80% of the trees on a golf course could come down. Let me just say that. I don't know about 100%, but 80% could come down. Um, you have to think where golfers congregate and what has to protect them at a tee because that's where they're congregating. Uh, you have to think about stuff like that, you know, especially if you're on a tight golf course. You know, and that's when golf trees started getting planted, uh, Derek, basically with Lady Bird Johnson's program of Beautify America. She took the billboards down and then she started planting trees. Uh, And then TV, at the same time that that happened, Shell's Wonderful World of Golf had an event. I think it was at at, uh, Pine Valley. And they were saying how great Gene Saracen, how great it was. You don't see a different hole. So when I was with Bill Newcomb in the late 70s and early 80s we were getting hired to do planting plants because they wanted to hide other golf holes and 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 also it, it relates to bunkers a little bit bunkers were hazards private clubs that are non-profit private clubs can't give share their money they're non-profit clubs and they weren't redoing bunkers bunkers were a hazard bunkers really didn't start getting rebuilt till about 1990 so what were clubs putting their money into their profit if they didn't have to redo their roof or redo their kitchen they were planting trees they were planting memorial trees for grandma and grandpa and stuff and and what they heard on tv oh we don't want to see other golf holes so all these trees were getting planted and i don't think everybody realized how bad it was going to be for the turf it's terrible for the turf. Absolutely. It's terrible. Yep. That's terrible. So I do, I've, I've gotten very, very busy uh, with some very classic renovations. 
I, I did a very nice renovation back in 05 at Lanark, which had the 1958 uh, PGA Championship. And I did a, um, I'm doing work at Squires, a men's club in Philly, but a, some big work right now. I just finished Hendricks, which you and I have talked about at Charles Banks Golf Course, which is owned by Essex County. It's a municipal golf course that opened last uh, year. And then uh, we're now in the process of redoing um, uh, Francis Byrne, the, the uh, Francis Byrne, the the other Charles Banks golf course. Uh, and those are major renovations. I mean, we're coring out the greens, we're redoing the greens, we're doing we're doing all sorts of stuff. But by the way, uh, let and me you hold have on a, one second. You have a brand new course. I don't know if you can talk about it. Uh, Talk about what? Old Bridge, a brand new course. Yeah, I, I just, new I construction. just, uh, let me pause this. All right. Old Bridge is a new golf course that I was fortunate enough to get hired by the developer, Ephraim Gertzberg. Great guy, good golfer, single digit golfer who develops all sorts of stuff. He's a, a major entrepreneur in different things. And uh, he wanted to build golf courses at, an old golf course called Glenwood, which is in the town of Oldbridge. And he was, because it's right on Route 9, there's a traffic light there. It's near two highways. It's just perfect. Uh, but it wasn't zoned for for uh, warehouses. But he heard that the town had been trying to build a golf course for 20 years, Oldbridge. So he approached them and he basically said, if you give me a zoning change to build warehouses, there were no homes around this golf course right on a major road, Route 9, uh, I'll basically build you the golf course and hand you the car keys. So they gave him a zoning change and we're building this golf course. Right now it's called Old Bridge, not sure what the name's gonna be. But I, in preparing for this podcast, I asked his construction managers, great young man by the name of uh, Brendan Mead, Young man, he's, you would think he's 50 years old. He's so knowledgeable as a construction manager and, and organized. It's very impressive, and he's 31, 32 years old. Uh, they found on the internet somebody, some guy by the name of Richard P. D Dyer did a, a, a drone video over it. So I'm going to share my screen here. And I'm going to show you this again right uh, now. Every, everybody listening, this is I not great talk a little bit uh, about podcast, the, uh, <laughs> but you can, um, you can go to YouTube. Can you see this? Could you see this moving? Yep. Yeah. Maybe you'll edit this out. This, by the way, that's the irrigation pond, the 13th hole, uh, the irrigation pond to the right is the 12th hole. What you're going to see on the left is a short, almost drivable par, uh, Four, that if you hit over that bunker on the left, it's very high and it kicks down about five or six feet and it feeds the ball into the green right there. I'm not sure if you see my cursor. Yeah, no, it's a nice looking hole. Again, this is uh, YouTube, All right. Old now, Bridge Golf, the he did, he Richard did this P. Dyer video on November D-Y-E-R. So, uh, this is some more holes that are being done. That's the uh, eighth hole. That's the maintenance building being built there. 17, this is 16. This is a par 5, 14 with these cross bunkers in the second landing area. And here, by the way, is a Baritz. That's a par three Baritz right there. There it is. Well, Stephen, we got to uh, start to wrap this up, but I want to go back to one thing you said earlier, uh, going back uh, to what 
something um you said that Pete Dye told Bill Newcomb that you took with you, and that was about don't worry about the bunker shapes, worry about the placement of the bunkers. Uh, and that was that was pertinent to you, to your development earlier in your career. When do you when did you notice that people started to pay architects started to pay closer attention to the edging of the bunker and the shape and how they fit? Because now that seems like over the last fifteen years, that's such a showpiece of every piece of architecture, and it always has I, been to some degree, I, I, especially I, in the nineteen twenties. I think they always were. I I think they always were. I, I was just having a debate with a ASGCA Tartan member, which is this beginning program to get in, Matt Schiffer, who does a lot of CAD work for me. And uh, yeah, I've decided on my age to try to be a mentor to people. So him and Garrett Watson and uh, my old associate, Doug Smith, they're all doing projects for me, helping me with projects. Um, He felt that in the 1990s, which he thinks is a different period than 2000s, which I don't think it is, uh, the architecture wasn't that good. I, I, I differ with him. And that's what's great about this. Uh, you know, I think golf architecture is a lot like movies. You know, there's different styles of movies. There's there are people who, you know, Alfred Hitchcock, Knight Shyamalan, may, they do their type of movies. And other people did all sorts of different type of movies. I mean, Steve Spielberg did Jaws and Schindler's List. How different are they? Um I, I love that there's different designs of movies and, and that we all have different tastes. Uh, I, I, there are people who have Schindler's list in their top three. I wouldn't have it in my top hundred and I'm a movie buff. All right. So there are people who like stuff. I, I think there were great golf courses built in the nineties. I mean, look at a lot of the great stuff that corn Crenshaw did in the 1990s, Sandhill, you know, f- you know, or the early two thousands friars heads and things that Pete Dye did. I mean, I think there were great golf courses then. And yes, the ones that had big budgets, Derek, they got their 7,200, 7,300 yards and they did big, crazy stuff. But the majority of golf architects weren't doing that. The, the majority of work that when the three, 400 golf courses were being built, that's not what they were doing. Yes, I th- do think they were ca- they cared about their bunker shapes. They were getting very into their bunker shapes and maintenance was getting better and better and better in maintaining those bunker edges and what it was going to look like, whether it was a bunker edge that was mowed tight or a bunker edge where you let the fescues go, go, go and you got that eyelash fescue Shinnecock type of look. Um I I thought there was a lot of variety. I thought that the 90s till about 2005 was a great period. The period right now, I think, is good, although I'm going to be very honest, Derek. I think a lot of the pictures I see about a lot of the renovations and a lot of the new courses that I see today, they they are starting to look very similar. And I think there was more variety of architecture in the golden age. I think there was more variety of architecture in the from 1990 to 2005. And I think now, say from 2015 to today, I don't think there's as much variety. Uh, Where the variety is coming in is, and where I think we need to go is we need to have some shorter golf courses. I did a municipal course called East Orange that I added a driving range and it's par 70, 5,700 yards. And it went from 10,000 rounds a year to 40,000 rounds a year. I think we need more executive courses, more shorter golf courses. And the USGA has got to figure out a way mathematically for people to have a 12 hole handicap and have 12 hole golf courses. It's where golf's got to go. 
I've had clients who wanted to go 12 holes and said, and said, if you can't have a 12 hole handicap, we're not going to do 12 holes. Yeah. Or get off, get off the strict T regulation, you know, you know, don't, don't that it forces golf courses to have distinct sets of tees rather than just a broad area where you could tee it up anywhere because of a handicap system. Um, you could, you could maybe lobby the USGA for that and your, your contacts in the uh, New Jersey golf association to <laughs> get off that, that such a rigid handicap system. Um, <laughs> but part of what you're talking about, about the diversity of golf courses, I think is true. It's a function of how many golf courses were being built in the nineties and early two thousands. You had jobs for many more people. One of the things that got lost that provided a lot of, uh, a lot of variety of in golf was you had what's lost now is just the, that a market of affordable public golf courses, not municipalities, not high-end resort courses, but Golf Digest up until the mid-2000s put out a list every year of the the uh, year's best best new affordable public golf courses with green fees oh. under 75. And there was a list of at least 10 of them every single year that, that we published. That was a huge market where I'm sure you did a lot of them, your, your peers did a lot of them. You don't see that anymore. There, there are so few new courses being built nowadays they tend to go to a small group of people. It, by definition, uh, inhibits the variety that you're going to get. You're just, you, you don't get a, That's a good Arthur point. Hills That's course. A good you don't get a Jack Nicholas course. You don't get a Tom Doak course. You don't get a Stephen K course anymore. You just get this homogenization of all these well, really good many, courses, by the way. Golf courses, how many new golf courses are going to be this year? 30, 40? Not new. Not in the United States. We'll have what was last year? How many new were in 2022? Uh, well, if you're talking about brand new golf courses, yeah, brand new, or, or you knocked the transformation, you know, uh, a total transformation is like basically a new golf course, yeah, uh, 15 to 18, and maybe a little more this year. So, you, I mean, you're right. How much variety could you have when you've got 20 or even count the major renovations 30 or 40 compared to 300 to 400 new golf courses yeah. a year? Yeah. You know, you just have fewer voices in the chorus. You just don't, yeah. you know, there's, there's just not as much opportunity for different looks and, and everybody knows what sells. Everybody knows what's in vogue right now. So, yeah. um, unless you're really, really confident and you have a, a list of clients lined up, you're going to, you're going to play toward popular convention. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And to, and I got into a discussion with a writer a year or so ago. Uh, he didn't write about it in the article when he talked to me, but I ask the question, and I'll ask you, where is golf 50 or 100 years from now? Not 10 years, 50, 100 years from now. Assuming the earth is still here. <laughs> yeah, I mean, can we? <laughs> you might only have golf courses in like one third of the country. But then, but then there'll be opportunities to do synthetic materials and synthetic surfaces. Or well, I, 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 playing I under think a, that's. A dome. I think that's some of it. Uh, one of the things those other writers said, he says, "Well, for one, there'll probably be a lot of robot mowings, which we're getting more and more with with machinery that is not manned by a human being that could mow." But I, I'm just I'm nervous that. You know, I have a degree in environmental studies. I have a degree in landscape architecture. I have a degree in, in agronomy. Uh, too many of the, I want to sound nice about this. Too many of the environmentalists thinks golf, golf is so bad for the environment with the chemicals we spray. And we spray chemicals a lot less than homeowners do, a lot less than other people do. And because it's so expensive 
Uh, I think golf course superintendents do a tremendous job. Uh, they should all, you know, hold their heads up high. They do great jobs. They're all environmentally sound. They really are. We are not polluting the environment. The Cape Cod study, which you investigate, proved that in Cape Cod and sandy soil, that golf might have been the best, most best place to filter water and clean water out. Uh, but I'm afraid that people, like you said, not all parts of the country, I'm afraid in certain parts of this country, golf courses will start getting closed, you know, 50 to 100 years from now. You know, how much golf is there going to be? Um, because it is such a great game and it is a game for a lifetime. Well, I th to me, that concern would be more uh, as much relating to the environment. Uh, it, it, I, I worry about or think about the economics. I'm just not sure yes. golf is affordable to very many people projecting no. 50, and, and that's years where out. I think the nine hole and the 12 hole go. And people say, you know, there are people who, who have owned daily fee golf courses who think municipalities, governments, county states should not be in the business of developing golf courses. And I understand that from their point of view, because that government agency who has that golf course isn't paying property tax and they're paying property tax. So it, it, there's a, it's very unfair in a competition sense. So I do think where municipalities should think about doing golf is to do executive golf courses, do short golf courses, do par three golf courses, do golf courses where it's not economically feasible to get a return on investment for for, for a, a developer, for somebody to do buy land and privately do and pay property tax and do all that, it doesn't make sense. You've got to have that regulation slash championship golf course because having, you know, a par 65, 5,000 yards isn't going to work. But that, but we need that for beginners. We need that for people. And that's where government agencies could, could come in handy. New York City has 14 golf courses. I think of the 14, I think Six or seven of them are less are less than six thousand yards, which is good. Okay, Stephen, uh, I've got to ask you this. I've got to run, but I want to. I wanted to ask you this. It's tradition, and I know a lot of architects are so busy with their own stuff they don't get out uh, and see a lot of other golf courses. But I always ask our guests, what's the what's your favorite modern golf course that you've seen? a course that you'd like to go back and, and play again that stands out. A modern golf course could be, you well, know, anything I'll, from the, I from hate the to 80s use your on. competition, but if we were to use golf weeks, uh, modern list, you know, Brad Klein said to me once, he said, I I'm going to do a list in golf week and I need 200 golf courses in the, in the top hundred. And I get, I went good luck with that. <laughs> and he figured it out. It was actually an interesting idea. What would be on that list that I would like to play again? I thought Muirfield village was wonderful. If you want to go to the 1960s, uh, I thought that was I thought that was magnificent. Um, uh, I think uh, Pete Dye's uh, the Ocean Course at Kiowa mm -hmm. uh, is wonderful. I think I think Sawgrass is absolutely wonderful. I actually very much like Nicholas's uh, course at um, what was it called Desert Highlands. Sure. I thought that was tremendous. Um, you know, for, for new golf courses in this in this more tighter period, I haven't seen anything that built after 2000. So I'll have to go to the major renovations. I think Gil Hans did a did a great job at at Plainfield, and at Aronimic. Um and what Dana Fry's done at uh, the Union League at uh, 
at the old Sand Barons Union League National. I did the first Union League that they that they bought Torsdale, which is an old Donald Ross course. Uh, but what he did at uh, the old Sand Barons, the Union League National in South Jersey, is even const- forget about design, which is wonderful. Just construction. I mean, the construction of this golf course and the building of it. Uh, uh, you know, I'm sure somebody's going to write a book about it someday. <laughs> Stephen Kay wonders what golf in the future, 50, 100 years in the future, will be like. We've spent hours on this podcast over the years, looking into the past, thinking about the way design trends never stand still, and where new generations of architects will take courses. But this is an even bigger question. At the rate we're going, will there even be golf in the next century? Sometimes it's hard to envision. On one hand, as income equality increases and wealth continues to concentrate in the accounts of the few, It's easy to envision a future where only the economically elite have access to whatever private courses remain, or the means to travel to all the distant Shangri-Las the Kaiser family and their peers have and have yet to build. It's a bleak outlook, but not unrealistic. Though there hasn't been a taste among the general public to fund affordable public golf for a very long time, at least there are some municipalities, like Essex County in New Jersey, that haven't given up on the sport. That's where Kay has just completed renovations at Hendricks Field and Francis Byrne, giving public players a taste of good classical-era architecture in the form of revived Charles Banks holes. It is so enjoyable to talk to people like Stephen Kay, who have so much experience and perspective to share. We addressed very little of what we set out to, but it was fun and instructive to let the current uh, conversation take us where it may. Take a moment to subscribe to Feed the Ball on your favorite podcast platform if you haven't yet, and leave a star rating and review while you're there. Please email or text this link for this show to a friend or colleague if you enjoyed it, and like it on social media at Feed the Ball on Instagram or Twitter if you see it. And don't forget, you can go to feedtheball.com to go deep into the archives of all my conversations with the many architects and media figures that I've spoken to over the years, and those are all free of charge with no advertising. Also consider washing your laundry on cold. It's an almost mindless thing you can do, pushing a button or turning a dial that can collectively make a difference when it comes to saving energy and conserving our world's resources. Me and my family do it every single load. It's nothing, our clothes are perfectly clean, smell good and fresh. Just think about it. I'd like to thank Stephen for being our guest and sharing all these stories. I thank you for being who you are and riding along on this journey of discovery. And I'd like to thank the Sundogs, as usual, for the bumper music. I wish you all the best, be well, and until we have a chance to do this again, adios. Adios.